Happy Easter. How's everybody doing? Hi, good morning. Well, um, here's the deal. Real quick, let's just get this out of the way. It's going to be weird and awkward, but I think all of the COVID babies are here now, today, in one place. I know. Where'd my man Peter go? I was going to... All right, there. Okay, so I just say this. We don't normally do this, but we could do a spontaneous dedication slash. We don't even do infant baptisms, but we've got the water here. So just toss them in. It'll count. It'll be good. Anyways, um, I promise, I promise this isn't going to be as big of a train wreck as it seems right now. We're going to get to Easter. We're going to get to the resurrection. But just for a one quick moment, I want to turn the spotlight um, to me because it's kind of on me anyways, right? Yeah, thank you, thank you. So at, some of you might remember this because it, it kind of proximally falls at the same time almost every year, but I think it was Thursday, was April 1st, right? Anybody got any good April 1st stories? I don't care, we'll get to those later. Because here's the deal, remember I said I want the spotlight on me, because it, is our, it was our 21st wedding anniversary, right? So April 1st, I know, and we knocked it out of the park. You'll, I'll, I'll tell you about that here in a second. Um, and, and, and yes, if you put it together, I make the same joke every year, which is, yep, April 1st, and yes, it's been one big joke the whole time. But what I noticed is my wife is never laughing. So I don't know if she's not in on it or what, but it probably has something to do with at least a good two-thirds of our anniversaries where me spent with, I don't know, 50 or 60 high schoolers plus an additional 20 adults, like either in Mexico or coming back from Mexico. So it was usually a quick phone call, like, happy anniversary, and like if I could get all the kids saying it too. That's probably why she's never laughing about it. But anyways, um, you know, here's what we did. We, we, we went out to, to dinner to Frankie's. We saw, I don't know, three or four people that we knew, so we got to visit with some people. It just felt good to go out for dinner. It felt good to have some life back. Um, and then, I know, it's crazy, we, uh, we went over to the IGA in North, I know, right? Showed my lady a great time, great time. We were looking for some ice cream to wrap up the evening with, and um, we got to the checkout, and as per usual, it's, I, I don't even know why these things still exist, but it's flooded with a bunch of magazines, right? You got Newsweek, and you've got Time, and you've got National Geographic, and, and they all are running the same story, because they've been running the same story this time of year since they've existed. I don't know what else they have to write about, which is a question about the resurrection or some kind of question about, did Jesus really? And I feel like, like at this point, Time magazine, you should be able to make up your mind, right? Like you've been doing this for years. Um, but I'm like, what, what questions are still really floating out there about like what we're celebrating today, which is the resurrection of Jesus? And, and I think this, I think really the, the great question of the resurrection is not whether it really happened, right? Like it did. I'm going to guess that the majority of us are here today because we believe that it did. And if we don't believe that, we're like really, really curious um, as to whether it did. And I tell you what, if you're curious as to whether it did, there's a bunch of magazines over at IGA that can help you <laughs> figure that out. But here's the deal. The evidence is just overwhelming that Jesus did walk out of a tomb after he was physically dead. 
So, so, so really the question is not whether it happened. I think the great question of the resurrection is, is this, is like now what? Like what does it actually mean for us? Now that Jesus has risen, now that there is an empty tomb, what does it mean for us today? What do we do with that? How does that reality that everybody lives in, you don't have to acknowledge it as true to recognize that it is the condition, it is the state that you are living in. So what do we do with that? How does it make things different? That's really, to me, the great question of the resurrection. The rest of the New Testament is written, right? And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all write about this event, and they all write about this event through their own particular experience or viewpoint, or like in Luke's instance, he was able to gather a lot of people that saw it, like firsthand witnesses to it, and record what they saw. But then the rest of the New Testament, all these letters from Paul and John and James, and it's basically written, I think, to give us that answer. What do we do with this? What is the, why is this important? And I think if you had to sum it up in one word, and I think, I mean, it's why we landed on this for this year. I think that this word, because it feels like a commodity, and it feels like a commodity that may be suffering under scarcity right now. And I think that what the New Testament tells us, one of the most significant things that the resurrection means for us is this word, hope right, and how desperate some of us are clinging on to hope. The good news of Jesus is a gospel of hope. Frederick Buchner said about the gospel and the resurrection, the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. So, so how do we think about the resurrection rightly? And I want to, I want us to get the order of it correct and right. The resurrection of Jesus is not the end of all things. It's not the climax of the story. In so many ways, it's the beginning. And what it gives us is hope. That's why the apostle Peter would go on to say, as he wrote his letter, 1 Peter 1.3, he says this, he says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Pay attention to that wording. He has caused us. Like it's not birthed from you. This eternal hope does not well up because of anything that you have done. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? This is not the end. Now that Jesus is raised and is victorious. Like we don't throw in the towel. We don't cross the finish line. We just step across the start or the beginning. Like we're just getting started with this whole thing. The resurrection has brought something new for us and for all of creation. And this new thing is called a living hope. We now have through the resurrection of Jesus, a living hope. So what does that mean? That's what we're going to attempt to answer today. What does it actually mean to live as if, to live in the reality that we are a people who have a hope, a hope that doesn't allow the world to push and grind us down to nothing? In order to answer this, man, we're going to have to ask God for help because he causes this great hope in us 
and he will cause us to see the answer through the work of his word and his gospel. So let me pray, and we'll get into this. Father, again, we, we want to come to you one more time, because in this moment, what, what we recognize is despite any effort that I've put into this, or despite any effort that we put into preparing ourselves for this morning, the simple truth is you cause all of these things to exist and to breathe and to happen and to hope. And so may we come under your word, your gospel. May your spirit that now lives in your people cause us to be a people that when we hear the truth of the gospel, we would surrender more and more to it today, that it would transform us and that we would go from here living lives of obedience to to your calling that you've placed on our life to be a people of hope for our city, to point people to the eternal hope, the only hope that we have in our risen and victorious Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, I mean, we're doing things a little bit differently. If you couldn't tell, we're actually going to be in Romans today, right? Romans chapter 8. Because here's why. When it comes to, I think, a theology of hope, what does it mean to have hope? How is hope sourced in the person and the work of God, the triune God? I think that this chapter, chapter 8, is really just like one of the most important and essential chapters to answering that question. And this morning, we're going to discover a few things, just a few unique things about the nature of Christian hope. So here's the first one. Um, hope is about the future. So, so we're going we're gonna to start like real basic here. I, I don't want to like alarm us too quickly, right? I know that we're still trying to wake up. We're getting coffee in us. So we're going to start real basic here because before we can understand hope, we, we have to have some idea what we mean by the word hope. Like, what is hope? We, we use it all the time today, and we use it pretty much in the same way that, that, that it was used in the first century. Paul tells us what he means by hope right in the middle of this chapter in verse 24. And, and I'm just going to lift a little phrase. For in this hope we are saved. So, so we're going to come back to that. But, but look at what he says after that. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, right? So, so very simply here, Paul defines hope by telling us actually what it's not. Here's what it's not. Hope can't be seen, right? So if you can see it, if it's happened, it's something that's not hope. That's not hope. That's like going back and like watching the 90s Bulls before they had won anything and saying like, I hope they win some games, right? Or like going back to this time last year and going like, yeah, I'm pretty hopeful this is only going to last a couple months, right? That is hope. You're, you're projecting, but, but those are things that we know like have happened, right? So, so hope has to do with this. Hope has to do with the future. It means to have a confident expectation in what is to come. That's the original Greek word. That's what it meant. And, and that's how we use the word hope today. Hope is always about a future reality that isn't tangible or not expressed today. It's a resolve. It's a feeling. It's a conviction we have about something, something we have not yet seen 
with our own eyes come into existence, but we believe, right, and hope anchors us to this. We believe that we will see it. And you might be wondering, well, how is that any different than, say, faith? Well, hope and faith, I mean, they sound the same. Often we use those things interchangeably, but but, but they're different, and, and the difference is nuanced, yes, but important, and it's that hope is the expectation of those things that faith has already believed to be true. So faith considers something true of God now, and whatever, whenever that crosses the line into waiting and looking for the future, it becomes hope. So the reality is we are celebrating today our shared faith. We are expressing a shared faith that Jesus went to a cross and was nailed to it, right? We know that that is true, but we also believe, and we're we're placing our faith in the fact that, that what came with that is that Jesus went to that cross instead of us, in our place. That has happened, and that is now a shared faith. Even the resurrection, we are saying that that is something that has happened, and so that's a shared faith that we have. But when it crosses the line into what has not yet seen or been seen by our eyes, then it's hope. Faith is the foundation of hope, but then hope becomes um, something that invigorates. It comes alongside and incorporates itself into our faith, and it, it gives us something in the future to long for, to groan for, to lament for. So we believe Jesus cares about this world. And we believe that Jesus proved that he cares about this world because he went to a cross and because he walked out of a tomb. That's faith. Like Jesus cares about creation. And in that act of his crucifixion and his resurrection, he is now redeemed and reconciling all things to himself. He is in the process of restoring all things. But we have this hope And that one day Jesus is going to return and make all things new and end all suffering. And so so we know that we place our faith in what he's already done. And then we extend our hope to what he is going to do. Which means, like, we have to have hope just like oxygen. Like, you can't live without it. Like, it's incredibly important. Hope is not just something that we, like, put back here on the shelf and then pull it off when we need it. It is the present reality. Like we're saying, we're expressing our shared faith in the things that Jesus has already accomplished for all of creation. And then our hope is extended to the things that we know and believe that he's going to accomplish in the future. So hope, first and foremost, is about the future. And then this, hope is, is received, not invented okay? And here's what I mean by that. Most of us would say, I think, to one, especially after the year that we've had, right? That, that hope is important. I don't know what y'all have been hoping for. My guess is most of you have not been hoping that we're going to stay in this condition for like another year. So we've had some hope expressed for something that we have not yet seen, 
which is a future where like we don't have to wear masks and we can like hug each other safely and we're not actually afraid of the person that's like sitting next to us like that's a hope that we have and so so we get it like we don't just pull out hope when we desperately need it it is the reality that we're living in so where does hope come from and does it even matter where it comes from some people might say that that hope really just acts like like a placebo right it's like that thing that you that you know isn't really going to do anything but you just kind of take it and you're just like well it makes me feel feel better. That's just like the power of positive thinking. It's like wishing upon a star. That's the way some people talk about hope, but that's not the way that the Bible talks about hope. It has to do with who we are at our very core. We are a people that have a living hope. That's one of the first things that we learn in Romans chapter 8. Paul is talking about our identity here, right? We just walked through a whole series to see how God formed and shaped and created a new covenant people and then gave them an identity. God is always in the business of speaking identity, like who you are, because this world is in the business of ripping that identity from you and giving you a new one that is false and a false sense of hope. And so, so, so Jesus, through Paul, is saying here that, that this hope that we have that is expressed in this future reality that we know to be true, that actually forms and shapes who we are and affects the way that we live today. So Romans 8, 8 through 17, he says this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Just pay attention to that. That is Paul, like through God saying, listen, before all of this, you were in fact dead. You were spiritually dead. And your people are walking around in physical bodies, experiencing physical life that Paul is writing to. And he's saying, before all of this, you were in fact dead, but it is now the spirit that gives you life. And not just a quantity of life, but a quality of life that impacts and affects who you are today. So then, brothers, We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is it. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That becomes so important. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our great spirit that we are children of God, and if we, if children, then heirs, if heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the key here in this passage is right there in verse 15 is that we have received now right we didn't invent this we didn't make this up but we've received the spirit of adoption right so the metaphor that that paul employs here this metaphor of adoption it becomes so helpful because it makes clear to us god's work this is god's work not our work listen the reality is 
we cannot adopt ourselves into the family of God. We cannot make ourselves adopted. Adoption is something that happens to us. Until God moves in action, we are helpless and left to ourselves. It has to be God who makes us his children. Like it wouldn't be enough to just start showing up to God's house and eventually he's like, oh, who's this? Like he makes us his kids. We've got to get this right. The Bible says that, that we were orphans, that we were left to ourselves and stuck on ourselves, that we were far from God and that we were without hope. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2.12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a bleak picture of the reality, but then God, right? Because then the, the reality of the gospel goes on to tell us about a God who could not live with us being alienated or separated or not his kids. Because it says, but then God, who is so rich in his mercy, he comes to us with the good news of Jesus, and we hear the truth that Jesus died for us, that he took our sin upon himself, that he bore the wrath that we deserve, and that he gives us his righteousness. The gospel is that Jesus took away everything that keeps us from God and gives us everything that brings us to God. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you've heard and you've believed the good news. God now claims you as his family, as his son or his daughter. And then God gives us his spirit to prove it. That is your adoption papers, is that you now have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That's why it says in verse 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And there's a condition, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's what that means. We are heirs of God. So we are poised to receive this kingly, righteous inheritance. To be an heir means this. To be an heir means that you have a future that exists outside of this sin-sick, broken world. This sin-sick, broken world that condemned you not merely to physical death, but to spiritual death and separation from God. But it means now as an heir that you now have a future. God has a future for you, which means this. It means that you have hope. So it goes like this. We have hope because God has a future for us, because we are his heirs, because we are his children, because we received his adoption. Because hope is received. It's not a mere invention that we tell ourselves just to get ourselves out of bed in the morning. That simply wouldn't be enough. That's not enough for Jesus Restore Albany, is it? Like hope doesn't just get us out of the bed in the morning. Hope causes us to be a people that are infused with a quality of life that alters our reality, then, then informs our mission to say, no, we want to be a hope-filled people that would go out and spread hope to our city. So hope is received. It's not invented and you can receive it now, today. 
you can believe the gospel of Jesus. Third thing is this, hope puts us in contradiction to the world. All right, so we have to talk about suffering because Paul talks about it there. You probably heard it there in verse 17, that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, right? So first, as followers of Jesus, we need to know that when we suffer, we suffer with him. And that suffering puts us in contradiction to the world. That's part of what it means to be united to Jesus by faith. When you make that great proclamation of faith in Jesus, which, man, we get to celebrate later today, it means this. It means that you've moved over here from allegiance to the world and connection to the world, living without hope, and you've become a part of God's family, and you have a future, and you now have hope But it also means that we're going to suffer in ways that Jesus suffered, which means we're united with him in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Our lives are bound up into Jesus's life and his present reality. And so when we suffer, we know that we're not suffering alone. Like some of us, it has felt like a season where we've suffered alone, but know that Jesus is experienced and has experienced all of this suffering. That's our faith saying when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus took all of our suffering upon himself, and so we suffer with him. And that suffering is pretty much the reality of life in this world. Look, I'm not trying to ruin your day. We just have to acknowledge that suffering is pretty much life in this world. I know it's Easter, and I know that there's more men wearing pink today and pastels than any other day, and we just want to be like light and happy But listen, this world is dark and life is hard and we suffer because the reality is for this to be good news, we have to deal with the bad news. Let's be honest, this world is turbulent. It's full of chaos. This world is not your friend. It's not your friend. Suffering is the reality here. And to the extent that we understand the future that God has for us, we need to understand that we will be repelled by this world because it can be dark here. That's why we have to remember the comparison. That's why Paul says in verse 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So I consider what I'm experiencing right now in this world, when we're over here and everything that's coming at us and everything that's happening to us, all the suffering and pain and darkness, listen, the, the reality is this, if you're not walking with Jesus, that's just real. And that's just heavy. And that's just suffering and pain. But the truth is, when you walk with Jesus, everything that happens over here is not worth comparing to the reality of the hope that we have in Christ. It's just not, it doesn't hold a candle to the truth that we are a people that are shaped and formed through hope. So if we're going to think rightly about the sufferings of this present world, then we have to know and trust in and believe in and have hope in the glory of the future. And it's not even worth comparing. Paul says in verse 19 through 23, we're talking about glory now. Listen, he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation, this is hope, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Notice that's all of creation. God cares about all of creation, and he's going to redeem all of it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning not grumbling, not complaining, but earnestly lamenting and groaning, saying, God, be true, be faithful to your covenant. So all of creation is groaning, just like the people of Israel were groaning for God to live into what he has promised. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions of son, the redemption of our bodies. Pay attention to that. He's talking about us who have the spirit in us. What is our posture? What is our position? We still groan. We still long for in hope for Jesus to come and return and fix all of this. So what is the glory of our future? It's our transformation. It's our restoration. Verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we are saved. Now that hope is not or that is seen is not hope, excuse me, for he who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we're waiting, right? And this is where it gets like real 100 for us. It's in the waiting. It's in the groaning. The, 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 the pain of this life is this. We are not yet who we will be. This world is not yet what it will be. And all of that is in the future, which means that current reality, like this thing stands against who we are as a people. This is who we are today as a people. We are a people that have a living hope, and this world is constantly pushing against that, but we don't belong to it. If we know how different our future is from what the world is now, it means that we cannot live in harmony and peace and shalom with this world. Hope forbids harmony with a broken world. Hope is then this. Hope becomes to us a resistance movement. Hope is about resistance. If we know that our future in Christ, if we know that God has promised, then we can't be okay with the darkness of this world now, right? We can't give in to it. There are two great enemies of hope, presumption and despair. First, when it comes to presumption, presumption is this, it's the fabricated fulfillment of God's promises now by our own hands. Presumption is when we try to make our own heaven out of this broken, sin-sick world. It's toxic, and it's really the enemy of hope. The other enemy is despair, and despair is when we consider the promises of God and we somehow believe that he simply will not fulfill them. Like he's not going to bring it into reality. Despair believes that God will not do what he has said, and therefore we have no future. And despair always gives way into what? Into making an idol out of something and worshiping something that we never were meant to because we're sitting here believing that God is not going to do what he said. And so then we come to this conclusion that we have no future. And if we have no future, then, then everything is faded of meaning and life becomes thin and void. Without hope, like what are we doing here? Without hope for the future, then, then the reality is like this is all just misery. That's why Paul tells us in, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, if, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. 
right? So, so if none of it is true about Jesus, then, then we have no hope and we are to be pitied. There has to be a better tomorrow if today is going to matter. And, and, and we have this glorious future promise to us by the God who keeps every promise. But the waiting is not easy. It means we need help and we have to have hope. Hope requires us to need help. It's point four, and we're almost done. Verse 26 to 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what this, or this is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, we can't live without hope, which means we cannot live without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the minister of hope, and we need him. And here's how that goes. God, he who searches hearts, knows the way the Spirit thinks because the Spirit thinks what he thinks, and the Spirit prays for us according to that. That's verse 27. There's this like mysterious collaboration happening within the triune God, and we're right in the middle of it, and the goal of that is God's will. And what is God's will? Verse 28 says this, it's that it's our good. It's that all things working together for the good of creation. And what is creation's good? Verse 29 says that it's to be conformed. It's that his image bearers would be now conformed once again to the image of Jesus. And that's an absolute guarantee, and that's not something sourced from us, but it's all through the work of the Spirit and the gospel. This is a part of God's saving work that stretches back from eternity past through the present and into the future. So when it comes to God's work in our lives, some of it we do not see, some of it we have seen, and some of it we will see. You've been justified. You've been freed from the penalty of sin. You are now presently being sanctified. You're being freed from sin's power. And so consider it as good as done. This is hope expressing itself today. This reality that you will be glorified. And you're trusting in that as, a, as if it is done. As if it is already true about you. Which is this, is that you will be freed from sin's presence you will be ushered into a reality that knows no longer this sin-sick world. Your entire body will be redeemed. You will experience the glory of being a child of God. You will know that freedom. You will be conformed into the image of Jesus. That is your future, and that changes us now. Hope changes us now. We're, we're done after this. This is the last point. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? 
Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I love Paul's question right there in 31. He, he, he just explained for us what this hope is all about. He has laid out for us what our future is because of Jesus. And then he says, what does this mean? Like, what does it mean? What does it mean for us now? What difference does this make for us now? Well, this is a little weird, but it, it, it makes us invincible, right? And to be honest, like, I, like that's a little weird to say, but, but it's what Paul says. Since God is for us, nothing formed against us will stand or succeed. Anything that comes against us, anything that this world, this sin-sick, broken world can throw against Jesus and his followers and his church won't succeed. Listen, I saw this quote. I'm going to kind of murder. I don't even know who said it, but like just the reality that the church exists today, like the, the church wasn't true, if the church wasn't real, if God had not accomplished what he said he accomplished in forming his church, this thing would have been dead a long time ago. I mean, think about everything that's come against the church of Jesus. Like this thing should have been put in its grave a long time ago, but nothing that's formed against us will succeed or stand. And here's his logic. This is gospel logic. It's, it's in the gospel, in the cross, and in the resurrection of Jesus. God has given us the greatest gift of all. And it's so great that everything else in comparison is just small beans for God to do. So then, the cross and resurrection of Jesus create for us a universe of glorious possibility today. We are to be a people that live into a glorious possibility today and show a watching world that there is a glorious possibility to be experienced now through hope. If God has given Jesus for us, crucified and risen for us, then what would he not do? What would he not give to us? He's going to give you all things. He's going to give you all things for your good, for your joy, for your conformity into the image of Jesus because of the cross and because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of Good Friday and Easter, we have hope. And that's what we celebrate today. And Paul's point here is to strengthen our hope by telling us that it can never diminish or be taken away. God is the judge over all, and he has justified you. Because Jesus was condemned, you are not condemned. Because Jesus was seen as guilty for our sin, you are forgiven and righteous. Because you are helped and prayed for. Because Jesus was condemned, you are forever united to the love of God. Because Jesus stood in your place and was condemned, it means that everything is now set right in this world and everything in your life that opposes God's love for you will simply fail. And this is where we need to feel it. This is where our hope for the future peels into 
like our present into our now, and it changes us. Since God is for us, no person or no thing, nowhere ever can ever overcome us. Your suffering will not destroy you like you think it will. It's going to feel like it will, but it cannot. It will not destroy you. God will do what he has promised. This is your hope, and it's a hope that will never die. That's why it's called a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I want to read to you real quick, just a quick text I got from a a member here this morning. I think it's so perfectly summed up. And it kind of gives us a new phrase, and so we're going to try something a little bit different here. Uh, But my friend wrote this, life conquers death, light conquers darkness, love conquers hate, grace conquers sin. Easter is ultimately a story of victory, Christ's victory, and ours too. Okay, now don't say it yet, because we're going to switch it up, all right? So, and then he wrote this, and I think I like this a little bit more. He wrote, he is risen, don't say it, because they're all going to say this, and we are risen in him. Okay, are you ready? You're going to say, and we are risen in him. Church, this is your hope. This is what you have not seen yet, but it shapes your reality today. Church, are you ready? He is risen, and we are risen in him. Let me pray, and let's respond.